Take your Bibles and turn with me today to John chapter 1. We have begun several weeks ago our study of the book of John with this theme in mind, life in Jesus, the Son of God. John very clearly wrote to us in this gospel with this purpose in mind that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the one sent by God to fulfill all of the law and the prophets, and he is the one who offers to us salvation from our sin and new life in him. And today in John chapter 1, we're going to close out the rest of John chapter 1, and we're going to see that these individuals who began to come to Jesus finding this new life. We've looked at the last several weeks, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, who was the last Old Testament prophet, and who was the one who was sent to, to give these last, to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of the Messiah. And now we begin to see those who are affected and called to him. And so today in in verses 35 through 51, we see this idea of meeting the Messiah. Look with me there, if you would, at John chapter 1, verses 35 through 41, or 51. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is, to, which is to say, then translated, Teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now, it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus went to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Father, we thank you now for the time we have set aside to look at your word today. We thank you for the testimony of these men whom we are encounter here, but all throughout the gospel who came to know Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the one promised by God to take away the sin of the world. And Lord, would you challenge our hearts and lives today through the testimony of these men? Would you show us that there is nothing greater on this earth or or in eternity than a relationship with you? And that the only way to an eternity with you is through a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. 
And for those who sit here today who know you as Savior, would you challenge our hearts by the testimony of these men who, who in their lives were changed and transformed, and they became living, walking, sh- uh, shouting testimonies of the gospel to others. Lord, may we, in the same way, may our lives be consumed with telling others about the good news of Jesus. We ask that you would do your work in our hearts, that you would help us to set aside those things which may distract us, that you would help us to today walk out of this place different than we came in because we have heard your truth proclaimed and we have made, made a commitment to follow you. And may we see you do your work in us. In your name we pray. Amen. There are some moments in your life that will stay with you forever. We can remember the date, the time, the circumstances, and, and, and there will even be those little stray details that surround an event that we remember. You, you may have some of those in your life. You know, the day you got married or the day that your children were born or, or uh, maybe the day that you passed the exam that you would long to get passed, right? Or, or maybe you had to pass a certain certification. And it's interesting, right, how many of those things kind of lodge in our brains and, and the things that we remember about those life-changing events. And whatever that moment may be, it's, it's more than just that moment that sticks. It's the other things that we associate with it as well. And today... In John's Gospel, written by by John the Apostle, we have the moment of his life that changed everything. And he has very personally written down for us this, this, this moment, this glimpse into his life to see these things. Because this is the day that he met Jesus and he understood who Jesus was, that he is the Messiah. Of all the days that he could remember, this one stood out above the rest as it changed his eternal destiny and transformed his earthly life. The new life that John and others found in meeting the Messiah compelled them to do something. They needed to tell others about Jesus' identity and his work. And and here we begin to see the amazing transformational work of Jesus. And what you see in this passage, in this first meeting that these men have with Jesus, is that the transformational work of Jesus compels recipients to become living testimonies of the eternal Messiah. When you come to know Jesus Christ... It is a life-altering experience. It's a life-altering decision. It's a life-altering confession of him as your Lord and Savior. And yes, it changes your eternal destiny. And yes, it means that you are forever settled knowing where you will spend eternity when you die. But it also has eternal ramifications that work out in temporal ramifications in this life as well. As our lives are then called to be consumed with the work of of Jesus here on this earth. And so let's take a few minutes today and we're going to look and we're just going to break this passage apart into the five different men that we meet here. And we'll take it in two sections. The first section we see three of these guys and in the second section we see other two of these guys that Jesus had interaction with. And so in verses 35 through 42, we meet these men, Andrew and John and Peter. And we see at the beginning of this, of this passage that there is a seating to the Savior by John the Baptist, that, that he is deferring again to Jesus. We now come in verse 35 again the next day. This is the third day in this week that John the Apostle has been recording for us. And once again, 
He says again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples. We again see John the Baptist. But John the Baptist, unlike the last passages we've looked at, um, and looking at his ministry, and, the, and he's kind of been the focal point of, of what his ministry was, John, John the Baptist is not the focal point of today's passage. No, today the focus begins to shift. John the Baptist's main job in this gospel is complete. We looked last week at verse 34 where he says, And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And I told you then that this is kind of like his, his testimony on the witness stand has come to a close. He's, he's shown us what he came to do. He's shown us the message of the Messiah. He's shown us the Lamb of God. And so now he's transitioning us to this next part. He is, uh, we now see his role further defined and, and played out of Jesus in this interaction and of John. And so on this day, John is walking, it says, with, with two of his disciples, and he again sees Jesus. And he recalls the previous day's proclamation. On the previous day, he had cried out to all those who were there, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here he simply cries out, Behold the Lamb of God. He, he takes these two men and he points them to Jesus and says, there he is. There's the Lamb of God. Remember the, the man I told you about yesterday? Well, there he is again. He's pointing these men specifically to the one who is greater than he. See, Jesus, the Messiah and Lamb of God, he is saying, is worthy to be followed. And that is exactly what is implied. You see, these two men, it's implied that they should not be the disciples of John, but instead should go and follow and learn from Jesus. And these two disciples, we see in their reaction, that's exactly what John was saying. Because the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And we're going to learn here in a minute that, that this, these two disciples, are one is Andrew, and one is John, and we know that because John never names himself in his own gospel. And so the, the one that was with Andrew that day was John the Apostle who wrote this gospel. They leave John, and they begin to follow Jesus. And, and John the Baptist is once again, I, I think we need to commend him for his knowing his role in God's plan and fulfilling that. You see, John wasn't sent to be an empire builder he wasn't there to, with some goal to amass as many followers as possible in order to build the greatest name that he can for himself. No, he is there to pave the way for the Messiah. And when the Messiah arrived on the scene, he ceded to and he yielded to the one that he had sent, been sent to prepare the way for. Even with his own followers saying, there he is. There's the Lamb of God. There's the one that I've been preparing you for. Go and follow him. And so now we turn our attention to these first two men who came in contact with Jesus here. And, and this is the, the first contact of any of the disciples with Jesus. And as you go through the Gospels, you're going to find different uh, interactions that Jesus has with these men, specifically in the beginning of, of his ministry. But, but what you have here in John is you have the first time that these men meet Jesus. Now, this is not their calling to being a, a disciple full-time, to leaving their their, their businesses and following him and devoting their lives to him. That, that comes later. You read about that in, in other gospels. But this is the first time that they meet Jesus and they understand who he is. And it is a glorious and life-changing interaction. And what we see is that to the seeking soul, Jesus clearly reveals himself because Andrew and John are these seeking souls looking for the Savior. Andrew and John detach themselves from John the Baptist, 
and they began to follow Jesus. It literally just means that they, they were walking with him as he walked by in order that they may learn more about this Lamb of God that has been proclaimed to him. You see, God was, was stirring in their hearts and he was stirring in their minds. That He was stirring them towards the Savior and, and they sought him out. And, and you almost wonder, right? You, you put yourself, remember, these are just, just ordinary men. Put yourself in that position. Here's, here's the man you've been following who's been preaching the message of the Messiah is coming. And he points to you, the Messiah, and you begin to follow him. I mean, what would you say, right? And I think it was you and me. We would just do the same thing. We're just going to walk here and when he wants to talk to us, that's fine, right? And that's exactly what happens. Because we see here in verse 37, the two, uh, verse 38, then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? Jesus very simply has a question of what it is that they are seeking. Now it's very interesting. Jesus does not say to them, whom are you seeking? I mean, the answer to that question is obvious. They're already with Jesus. They're already following him. No, no, he, he is calling on them to consider in their hearts what it is they hope to gain and what it is they hope to find in an interaction with him. It is meant to question their motives. Do they seek the removal of sin through the Lamb of God or do they seek something else? Do they seek an exalted position? Do they seek to be accepted by other people? Do they seek influence, an exciting religious experience, the approval of someone such as John the Baptist? Or are they seeking the forgiveness of sin and the transformational work of God? These men had already been disciples of John. And in that day, that that meant that they were learners attaching themselves to a teacher to to quite literally follow him and to devote their lives to him, to learn from him. And and these type of men, these, these men, I'm sorry, are seeking this type of relationship with Jesus to learn from him and They will be faced then with what it means to be his disciple. And and upon hearing this question, they respond with a question of their own. Continue there in verse 38. They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? They preface that question with that title of respect, Rabbi, meaning teacher. One that that, that has religious authority, that, that can teach on the things of God. It was a common title that was used, of course, of other teachers in Jesus' day, but it is applied perhaps more exaltedly to Jesus, right? Because he is the Son of God and God himself. And they wish to know, this question they ask reveals their desires because they wish to know where is he staying? You ever read that and wonder, well, what is it they wanted? Do they want a tour of his abode, you know? Do they want to go and see if he had a three-bed, two-bath ranch house on a lake? I mean, what is it? No, they're not asking, hey, can we come see your house? What they want is a private meeting with him. They want an opportunity to speak to him, to ask him questions. Remember, these men are Jews. They've grown up in Israel. They've grown up hearing the prophecies. They've grown up knowing that the Messiah would come. And now the man they're following says, there's the Messiah. Wouldn't you have a lot of questions? Wouldn't you have a lot of things that you want to find out about him? That's exactly what they're asking. They want to know more about him. They have hearts that long to know him. You see, when God begins to work 
in the heart of a person, you see several different responses. When God begins to work in your heart, when God begins to show you your sin and your need for a Savior, when God begins to show you who He is, there's several ways that you and I can respond. There are those who want to know more of the things of God, that they wish to hear what He has to say, and they seek to find the answers that He has promised. They go to his word, they go to those who they know, who, who, are, who know the Lord, who can give them the answers to these things and point them to the word of God. They, they seek God. Then there are others who seek some type of selfish desire and try to make God serve their own ends. They see professed faith as some sort of salve for their conscience, as a step needed in order to get in good with someone else, or perhaps some kind of missing experience they don't have in their life. They're not casting their souls on God, but merely attempting to add him to the pantheon of other gods that they have amassed into their lives. Again, I use that word attempting. Because God isn't another God with a little g that you'd put in your life. He's the God of all. And he deserves first place in our lives. Then there are still those who close off their hearts to the things of God. They do not wish to be told the truth of their sin and of their need for a Savior. And as, you, as God begins to work in their heart and hammer away at their sin, they, they continue to close their ears to the things of God, not wishing to be told the truth of the gospel and their need for Him. But there is only one proper response to God. And that is to seek him for salvation and satisfaction of the debt of our sin. Andrew and John wish to know more of this one of whom they have heard such great things from their teacher, John the Baptist. One author said it this way, Jesus never put off the sincere, spirit-prompted seeker. God does not hide himself from those who want to know him. And as God works in your heart and calls you to himself, he will show you himself. If you cry out to him and ask him to show you your sin and to show you the hope of the gospel, he uses his word to reveal himself to you and to draw you to himself. And we see here very, very pointedly that Jesus does not put these men off who truly wish to know him more. What does he say in verse 39? He said to them, come and see. He responds to their inquiry about where he was staying, but the answer is far deeper than that. He invites them to personally experience who he is and what he has come to do for the sins of mankind. He invites them to a personal, saving interaction with the Son of God. And indeed, that is a glorious thing. And we see the impact it has, especially on the life of the one who wrote this. He says, they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now, it was about the tenth hour. They remained with Jesus for the rest of the day. The implication here is that they actually spent the night with him. And it's so impressed in the mind and the heart of John the Apostle that he remembers the time. You notice that? It was about the tenth hour. Now, there, there is some debate. We're not entirely sure 
if, if Jesus or John was using the Roman method of timekeeping or the Jewish method of timekeeping. Because John is a Jew, but, but you can see throughout this passage that, that he's writing to Gentiles. He's writing to people who aren't familiar with Jewish customs. That's why he translates a lot of these Hebrew words, like the word Messiah being translated to Christ or, or rabbi, meaning teacher. So, so if he's using the Roman timekeeping, uh, it would be t- about 10 o'clock in the morning is what time it would be because they started at midnight. But if he's using the Jewish timekeeping, it would have been 4 o'clock in the afternoon because they started about 6 a.m. when the sun would rise. Whatever the case is, it's clear that they remain with Jesus the rest of the day and they hear what he has to say and he answers their questions. And don't you wish that you could have heard some of the things that were said that day? Don't you wish that you could have seen, seen the hope that began to, to blossom in their hearts as they, they hear who Jesus is and, and what he's come to do and, and how he's fulfilled the things about the Messiah. I mean, we, we may be drawn, our hearts and minds may be drawn back to the end of Luke when the two disciples after the resurrection meet, meet Jesus on the road to Emmaus and have no idea who he is. And he begins to, to tell them all the things about the prophets and he shows them himself and they talk about, did or not our hearts burn within us to hear the truth of God's word given by the incarnate word. The point is very clear. John and Andrew met Jesus that day. And their lives were changed. All their questions were answered. And all the things that John the Baptist had told them, were, they were true. And, and though they did not permanently begin to follow Jesus' disciples on that day, they did find transformation in the Lamb of God. And he said, well, how do we know that? Because we see that in the interaction with the third man mentioned in this account, the specific calling on his life. We see that specific calling that Jesus gives to a man named Simon. We read in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Like as we said, it's implied in this passage that Andrew and John stayed with Jesus overnight. And so the next day, the changed lives of Andrew and John begin to show their, their effects. This incredible truth that they have learned and experienced cannot be contained. And so Andrew runs to find his older brother and wishes to share the news with him. If you're familiar with anything from the Gospels, you may understand then that Simon Peter is a very prominent person in the, in the story of Jesus and in the story of the church. He is used very greatly in those things. But this is the very beginning of that. This is the very beginning of, of Simon's relationship with Jesus, and it comes through his brother Andrew. His fame is even seen, though, in the way that we're told about Andrew. I mean, did you notice that? He says one of them, or, 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 one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He's even identified there. And so you see here, uh, even then, um, a, 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 an effect of when John wrote, as he wrote this gospel later after the other gospels had written, he, he anticipates that the readers already know who Simon Peter is. They're familiar with him and, and what he's done. And that Andrew is his brother. But we see here the instrumental role that Andrew plays in his brother's coming to Christ. I, I personally, for, for perhaps obvious reasons, believe that Andrew is the most underrated disciple. Okay? You could take that home with you today. All right? But we see here that Andrew is, is compelled to find Simon and to lead him to what he's discovered. 
He doesn't, he doesn't walk out that day after, after being with Jesus. Oh, that was, that was nice. That was refreshing. That was a good thing. No, he, he runs to find his brother and to share with him the good news of what he's come to learn. He declares to Simon that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one has been found. Peter and Andrew have both heard the prophecies. They've both grown up in a nation feeling the longings of that nation that was under the rule of Rome, and now the time has come. And it's a very interesting word here that Andrew uses. He says, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. That word found, it's the same, it comes from the same word in Greek. And it literally means to find something after searching for it. So he goes and he, he finds his brother. That, that part is obvious, right? He had to go find his brother who, was, who might have been off fishing or whatever he was doing. But then he says to him, we have found the same word, the Messiah. An entire nation has been searching and looking all of their lives, generation after generation after generation, for the one who would deliver from sin. And Andrew says, we found him. He's here. Personally, Andrew had had an interaction with the Messiah And now he wastes no time but declaring the good news to his brother. And then he brings his brother to meet Jesus. This is the pattern that you'll notice of Andrew's life. We're not told a whole lot about Andrew's interactions. But what we are told, and especially in the book of John, we're mentioned, this is mentioned a few times. And and again, this is, this is speculation. It's, it's not something you write home as doctrine, okay? But, but I wonder, because Andrew and John were those two guys who came together, if John highlighted some of these things from Andrew's life because they're friends. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote those things down for us. You'll see it come up again that, that Andrew, is, in John chapter 6, is, is bringing someone to Jesus. And later, when the Greeks, Andrew and Philip, are involved in bringing the Greeks to Jesus and later on in the book of John. We see that this is the life of one who is changed by God. If you and I know Jesus as our Savior, we cannot help but tell others of what he's done for us and who he is. The life-changing power of the Savior results in life-altering and life-consuming behavior. The life-changing power of the gospel, the life-changing power of Jesus Christ... It results in your behavior being altered, your life-altering behavior, and your life-consuming behavior. It's your life, it's not your own, it belongs to God. You are bought with a price. And if you knew something that great, you can't help but tell other people. Some scholars believe that the wording of the original Greek here also implies that John went and found his brother James on that day as well, but it is Andrew who was successful in locating his brother first. And, and that's certainly not unexpected. We don't know that to be the case for sure, but, but it's not unexpected by what's being experienced by these two men. And, and upon Simon's arrival, we read a most fascinating thing. Look what happens in verse 42. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Jesus wastes no time in showing Simon who he would become in himself. When Simon arrives on the scene, he's he's given a new name. Really, it's almost like a nickname that Jesus gives him. He he says, your your name is Simon. You're the son of Jonah, or or more literally, his dad's name was John. 
But he will be known as Cephas. That's this Aramaic word, and it means stone. And it's, it's the Greek name that's translated from that word is the, is the name Peter. And with this, we see the specific calling that Jesus is placing on Peter's life. The first words recorded of Jesus' interaction with Peter are the antithesis of what Peter presently is in his life. Because if you have read the Gospels and you have paid attention to the life of Peter, you would know this about Peter, that he is a tempestuous, vacillating person. He's, he's, he's a lot like the waves that he fished. He's up one minute and he's down the next. Up here, down here, up here, down there. And you, you read throughout the Gospels and, and you see that happen in Peter's life. But Jesus looked past who Simon was and said, this is who you will be in me. Throughout Peter's journey with Jesus, it's really interesting that you see the names Simon and Peter used interchangeably. And often, Jesus refers to him as Simon when he is struggling with his old self and those old actions of tempestuousness. And Peter is used when he refers, in referring to him as he showed the signs of the new life in Christ and growth in him. That name, Peter constantly reminded him of what he was to one day be in Christ. And he wasn't perfect by any means, but he would continue to grow and be used greatly by God. And one day, the wavering fisherman would be a solid pillar of the faith in the founding of the church. And that was God's plan from the very beginning. That was God's plan in Peter's life from the day he met him. God doesn't call you to himself that you may remain the same. God doesn't show you his love and salvation, that you can go on living your life unchanged and doing the exact same things you were doing before. No, he calls you to something greater in himself. He calls you to a life lived for his glory. This takes submission to him and a dependence on himself because this life that we can live isn't because of us. It's because of Jesus. And in two days, three lives have been transformed. And if John had brought James at this time, as some believe, that that would be four of these lives. And and already the pattern is set. Lives are, are changed. And then those touched lives go out and impact others. And that's going to be seen in the other two disciples we encounter in this chapter as well. As the second group of people we see, we meet these guys, Philip and Nathaniel. We saw in in, in Andrew and John, the the seeking souls, those who were were wanting to know more about Jesus. But, But we flip this on its head now and we see the seeking Savior in the life of Philip. In verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. The day following Peter's first interaction with the Lord, we see Jesus' desire to go to Galilee. And we must note from the outset that Jesus never does things simply because he wants a change of scenery. No, he has a purpose in the things that he does. This will be a callback that you'll see again in John chapter 4 when Jesus has an interaction with the woman at the well and says, I must needs go through Samaria. It wasn't just because he wanted to take the shorter route, it's because he had someone to minister to. Jesus is God. 
And he knows all things. And he knows these men that he, and, and women that he was going to have interactions with. And today it's no different. For on the way to Galilee, he meets this man named Philip. But Jesus simply has one calling for Philip. He beckons him to follow he calls for Philip's faith in himself. We don't know if there was other conversation that took place. Perhaps there was some type of conversation like Andrew and John had had. Or maybe these men were, were filling in the, the details as they brought Philip along. We don't know what happened. But here, Jesus has revealed his purpose for Philip's life, that he would come to know the Messiah and follow him. Philip is also from the area around Galilee says, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, and Peter. So specifically, he's from this area called Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida literally means house of fishing. And so you can probably guess it was a fishing village where Andrew and Peter were originally from. I can think of some of you who would probably like to live in a place called the house of fishing, right? And though Peter is said to have lived in Capernaum by now, it is not unusual to talk about where people originally hailed from. Though they may live now, presently, live somewhere else in that area, originally they had from, been from Bethsaida. And as Jesus sought out Philip, we see his life is changed in the way he compels another to follow as well. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of of Joseph. As Jesus had sought out Philip, we see his life change, and Philip has a friend whose name is Nathaniel, and he needs to hear what has happened. And so he finds him, and he proclaims to him a wonderful truth. He recognizes Jesus' messianic role, and he tells that Nathaniel that, that the one whom they have found is the one that all of the Old Testament refers to. That's what he says. He says, Moses and the law, and also the prophets. What he's saying is, all, everything you find in the Old Testament, we have found the one who fulfills everything there. And that's exactly what Jesus does. We have broken up for us 39 books of the Old Testament. And the fulfillment of all the things that happen there is Jesus Christ. Of all the prophecies, of all the signs, of all the things that pointed ahead, it's Jesus. And that's what Philip is saying. Hey, Nathaniel, we found this man. And he says... The promised Messiah has arrived. And Philip has had a personal interaction with him. He knows who he now is. He is Jesus of Nazareth. And it's interesting, he calls him the son of Joseph. Now, of course, Jesus had no earthly father like you and me. His birth was a miraculous work of God that he was born to the Virgin Mary. Joseph was his adopted earthly father. And, and this is how most people would have known him. Most people would have known Jesus as the son of Joseph. And it's probably not very unfair to say that people knew who Jesus was as a person. Imagine, if you would, a man who's about 30 years old, and, and he lives his life in accordance with all of God's laws. Do you think that, that you would find out about a guy who lived a lot differently than everybody else? I mean, it's it's going to get out, Right? Now, you may not know, a lot of people aren't going to understand what that means, but you're going to know this man who treats other people the way that God said they should be treated. And he says, hey, he's, he's Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who's the son of Joseph. 
But that doesn't mean that Jesus was immediately recognized as the Messiah, though he lived in accordance with God's laws. Indeed, his earthly home and his earthly upbringing were how many people knew him. Let me refer you really quick here to a passage in Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 through 56. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And I read to you this morning in our scripture reading that passage from Luke, where again these people said, Is this not the son of Joseph? Jesus is the son of God and God himself. Yet he humbled himself and came as a servant. He came to fulfill the plan of God and offer salvation no matter the cost. And and so what we gather here from this statement of Philip and from this passage is that, yeah, people knew who Jesus was, but, but they didn't understand why he came. And that would be a struggle that would go on throughout his ministry as the blindness of sin struck the hearts of people. And we gather from this statement that Nathaniel, the next statement, that Nathaniel presumably Philip's familiarity with the things of the Old Testament. When Philip says that he fulfills all of the law, but then look at Nathaniel's follow-up statement. And Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel wonders, is it really possible that something good is going to come out of place of Nazareth? Now, the prophecies all throughout the Old Testament, they don't speak of Nazareth. You know what they speak of? They speak of Bethlehem, right? The city of David. And, and where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem. He fulfilled the prophecies. But where did Jesus live and grow up? He grew up in Nazareth. So you can understand some of the confusion, right? Now, there are also those who believe that there may have actually been some, some tension between some of those cities and some, some prejudice even against Nazareth that prompts Nathaniel to say these things. And when faced with this question from Nathaniel, I think the response of Philip here is very incredible. I mean, he doesn't take time to, to come up with all of these reasons how Nazareth could be. What does Philip say? Philip said to him, come and see. He doesn't speculate with Nathaniel. He doesn't even try to answer every question. He says, why don't you come and see? One author said that idle speculation is no substitute for personally investigating Christ. There is simply no substitute for personally encountering the Savior. And listen, Christian, you and I should study the Scriptures. And you and I should know why we believe what we believe. But at the end of the day, the endless quest of apologetics is worthless if we do not invite others to come and see Jesus in the Word of God. And I don't want to be misunderstood here. Apologetics is a wonderful thing, and I think as a Christian, you and I should know why we believe what we believe and what does the truth of God mean. But at the end of the day, that doesn't mean anything if you're not going to take it and you're not going to take the Word of God and say, come and see. Come and see. Be a part of my life. Understand what God has done for me. Understand what he says in his word. You and I cannot content ourselves with learning arguments. We must know the scriptures. We must share the scriptures. We must open the word of God. And we must take people there. Because the power of God does not reside in the logic and the schemes of man. It is in the living word of God. 
Life change comes from meeting the Lord. Philip knew that firsthand. And so, he invited his friend to do the same. How many of us in this room have friends or family or others that we know who need the good news of Jesus? Probably many in this room. And how often do we spend time just telling them about who Jesus is? So often we get hung up on the minutia of church or of doctrine or of practice and other things that we fail to give the greatest truth. Jesus is God and he came to save your soul. That is the core truth that everyone needs to know. And you and I can argue with church people all of our, all of our lives about what, why you do this and why you don't do this and this and that and the other. But at the end of the day, what they need to hear is the truth of the gospel. And all the other stuff will fall in line after that. Let us not exchange the power of God for the system of man. God knows our hearts and his word penetrates our souls. You would be amazed, and we shouldn't be, right? But we are, myself included, that when we just give the word of God, God does the rest. He does his work. That is certainly what the living word did for Nathaniel. We see the superior knowledge that Jesus shows over the life of Nathaniel. Jesus, verse 47, saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? As Nathanael approaches Jesus, it is revealed just how much Jesus knows about this man. He proclaims, as Nathanael approaches, that, that he is an Israelite without deceit. What he's doing there is he's not saying, oh, this is really an Israelite, or he's truly from the, the stock of Israel. What he's saying is, he's talking about his character. He is truly a man who is not deceitful. He is not duplicitous in his motives. But he wishes to examine Jesus and the claims about him for himself. I mean, he was very honest in his reply to Philip, right? Can anything good out of, come out of Nazareth? I mean, that's a very open and honest response. And Philip says, come and see. So what does he do? Well, I'm going to go find out. And he comes to see who this man is. He wishes to exa- examine Jesus for himself. And it seems that throughout this exchange even, in this statement and in one at the end, that Jesus is calling back to a patriarch of Israel. He's calling back to Jacob. Jacob, in, in Genesis, was, was later renamed Israel, and it's from his sons that the tribe of, of Israel were formed. And if you don't know anything about Jacob, know this. Jacob was known as a particularly deceptive individual for much of his life. We've been looking, uh, during the Iwana year, we've been going through the book of Genesis on our Wednesday night Bible studies, and we talked about, in depth and at length, about the life of Jacob and how he took matters into his own hands, and he attempted to make things work out in his favor in every undertaking. And in contrast to Jacob, Nathaniel is not deceptive. He is honest and straightforward. He deals in truth, and Jesus is revealing his omniscience to Nathaniel. You see, his knowledge as God is far superior to anyone else. And what happens here is Nathaniel does not deny 
that what Jesus says is true. He very straightforwardly says in verse 48, how do you know me? It is not some form of feigned or even genuine humility. He's not saying, oh, I'm not like that. No, he's, he's, it's an honest question. In essence, he's saying, I've, I've never met you before. How do you know what I'm like? Jesus takes this wonder a step further. He not only has declared what Nathaniel is in his heart, but now he declares physically where Nathaniel has been. Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This is quite possibly a reference to a place that Nathaniel meditated on God's word and prayed. Oftentimes these men who, who study the word of God, they would find a place like this to meditate on things of God and to pray to God here in Israel. Or maybe it's just the tree he was sitting under that day when Philip came along. But here's the point. God knows where we are at all times. He sees us and he cares for us. When it comes to the Lord, there is no one who is, so to speak, lost in the shuffle. And we see that this is enough for Nathaniel. He's observed that Jesus knows only that which God could know. He says in verse 49, Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He affirms that Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher in Israel, is the Son of God and the King of Israel. These are two titles, by the way, that are only appropriate to use if you're talking about the promised Messiah. You don't use those on some random stranger. Nathaniel recognizes as Jesus as his personal king and the promised king of his nation. And this meeting with Jesus is enough to change his life forever. Nathaniel would also be called into following Jesus eventually as a disciple. And only here in John, he is called Nathaniel. You actually, you go to, to other, the other books and look at the list of disciples, you never run across Nathaniel, but he's called Bartholomew. And so Nathaniel is, 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 is Bartholomew is, is actually a surname. And, and, and Nathaniel is his, his given name. And Jesus promises this man will see the greatness of God. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus says that that Nathanael has only seen a glimpse of the greatness of God. Now, Nathaniel needed only a small glimpse of who Jesus was to believe in him. And as he walked with the Lord, he would see more of who he is and what he does. And it is here that Jesus takes us specifically to the the life of Jacob again. When Jacob was fleeing uh, from his home country because he had deceived his brother and his father and his brother had promised to kill him, he made made a, a, a camp one night And laid down, and as he laid down, he dreamed, and when he dreamed, he saw a ladder or stairway going between earth and heaven, and he saw angels ascending and descending on that ladder. And that dream was a reminder of God's presence when Jacob saw it. But here, Jesus shows us that he is even the ultimate fulfillment of that dream of the the patriarch of Israel. 
He is the link between heaven and earth. Jesus reveals the truth of God to men, and he is the only one who can bring us to God. Jesus brings a new covenant, a better covenant that will reconcile man and God because he will pay the price of sin. He is God incarnate, the living word of God, and as such, he has all power as God. This is who the Son of Man is, he says. And that title, the Son of Man, is the last title that's used here in John chapter 1, of, and Jesus used it of himself, and it was the title that Jesus referred to himself most often by. It was a reference to a prophecy of Daniel and associates himself with mankind. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and now his earthly ministry has begun with the evangelization of these men and their lives. He has called these men unto himself that he may give them new life. And these men don't fully understand who Jesus is yet or what he has come to do as the Messiah. Just because they recognize him as the Messiah doesn't mean they fully grasp what he's going to do. Jesus is going to spend the next three years helping them to see these things. But even, even as, the, as, as the cross draws near, we see the, the struggle in the hearts of these men to understand who Jesus is. They had seen enough, though, to place their faith in him as the Messiah and would then commit themselves to following him. They met the Messiah and their lives were forever changed because the transformational work of Jesus compels recipients to become living testimonies of the eternal Messiah. Jesus transformed the lives of these men on these days that we read here today and and he can do the same for you. Jesus is much more than you and I could ever hope for. He has guaranteed life, eternal peace, unending love, and grace beyond degree. And he meets the deepest desire of your heart and gives you new life and new purpose on this earth. Jesus invites you to come and see his goodness for yourself. He invites you to lay down your self-efforts of pride and righteousness and instead find full and complete fulfillment in himself. The questions you have are settled in him. The debt you owe for your sin has been met in him. The power you need to live a guilt-free life of victory is found in him. Will you come to him today? Just as Andrew and Philip were transformed by their faith, so we are transformed as well. And and may I just say, if you know Jesus as your Savior, it should be the greatest thing about you. The excitement of these men when they discovered the Messiah is the same excitement and joy that we can feel in our hearts and lives today. Does the grace of God poured out on your life compel you to tell others? Perhaps you struggle to share what God has done with others because you don't know what to say. I I have heard that phrase uttered more times than I can count. Well, I just don't know what to say. You know what? I have great news for you. You don't have to know all the right words. You can simply share what God has done for you and invite them to come and see. Come and see the goodness of God in his word. Think of it this way. If you were standing on the edge of, of Ross Lake here in Michigan, Beaverton, Michigan, okay, that's, that's our huge body of water around here, okay? 
and you saw someone drowning in the lake, and you can swim. No one else is around to help. Would you stand on the side of the lake and wonder, I would help, but what if I get out there and they make fun of the way I swim? Well, uh, what if I just, you know, just, just kind of forget how to swim? Or what if I just, we would jump in and we would help a person, right? Why then do we sit on the sidelines of a dying world while others around us flail, lost in their sin, and headed for certain death? Because I just don't know what to say. Christian, your life is a testimony. What has Jesus done for you? Another reason, though, that Christians struggle to share the gospel is because it makes no discernible difference in their lives. If you have tolerated sin in your life and have not made things right with God and others, you cannot be an effective witness for him. You see, Jesus calls you to find victory over your sin in him, to submit to him that you may proclaim the glories of his kingdom fully. And I'm not talking about being a perfect person, okay? I'm not talking about, well, well, when you get victory over all your sin, only then can you, because not of, I wouldn't be standing here, okay? But if you continue to tolerate known sin in your life and you continue to go on and press ahead with what you know is wrong because, Jesus, because God has clearly laid it out in his word, then you're not going to be an effective witness for him because the things of God are not the most important thing in your life. We should be burdened to tell others about what Christ has done. And, and if you need help or training or resources, we, we can provide that here for you. And if you have questions about the Bible and about God, we can help you come to see who Jesus is. I invite you to meet the Messiah and I invite you to find your life transformed in him and live a life transformed by him. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these men, these five men that we have met today. God, and in just a short passage, we see the amazing life transformation that was brought about in their hearts, in their lives, in their actions, all because they came and saw who Jesus is and embraced the truth. Lord, how freeing and transforming and wonderful is the truth of the gospel. And Lord, as we consider the amazing work of Jesus Christ, we are, as the songwriter said, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Today, Lord, I I ask that you would work in the hearts of of those who sit here today who maybe still struggle with their eternity. God, perhaps they have tried to add God on to the other things of their life and just tried to assimilate God into those things and, if, and tried to make, him serve, make you serve their own purposes. Lord, would you help them to see that, that only faith and trust exclusively in you will bring about eternal life, and eternal peace. There may be others here today, Lord, who have just turned their hearts and ears away from hearing anything of you. They wish not to be convicted of their sin. They wish instead to live their lives the way they want to. And may you show them the end of destruction that lies for them and the hope.
that they can find in you. Lord, for the seeking soul, you show yourself. And Lord, I pray that you would touch the hearts and lives of those here today who need to hear the message of the gospel. For Christians who are here today, Lord, I ask that you would work in our hearts and our lives, that you would expose our sin. Expose to us the sin of of selfishly keeping these things to ourselves, of not reaching out to others. Expose to us other sins that keep the power of the gospel from shining fully through in our lives because we continue to tolerate those sins and we continue to to excuse them and act like they're okay and help us to confess those things to make them right. Help us to live changed lives in your power. Lord, we ask that your honor and glory would be done in our hearts and lives today. We pray that you would watch over and protect us as we go from this place. Would you bring us back safely here tonight? to continue to worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.